The gospel lesson that you heard Amanda teach just a few moments ago is found in John chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 1 through, 11, 1 through 8. And if you wanted to read a little extra, you can go to verse 11 as you study through the week. Hear God's word. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. John the narrator writes, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dorothy Day was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1897, and she died in 1980. She was a journalist who became interested in social causes and helping the poor and also the workers in the city. She took her Christian faith right to the dreadful slums of New York City. There she established the first Catholic worker house, a place of radical Christian discipleship. The house became a place of hospitality for the down and out for men that she later described as, quote, gray men, the color of lifeless trees and bushes and winter soil who had in them as yet none of the green of hope, the rising sap of faith. Not, longer af not long after, the Catholic worker house began welcoming women and children as well. One day, a wealthy socialite pulled up in a big car in front of the worker house, and she received the obligatory tour of the mission from Day herself. And when the woman was about to leave, she stopped and impulsively took the diamond ring off of her ring finger and handed it to Dorothy Day and then left. The staff at the worker house was ecstatic when they learned that Dorothy had received this extravagant gift, for they had some budget concerns and thought that perhaps they could sell it and use the money to shore up their finances. A day or two later, though, one of the staff members noticed the diamond ring on the finger of a homeless woman who was leaving the mission. 
And immediately the staff members confronted Dorothy. Why in heaven's name would you just give away a valuable piece of jewelry like that? And Dorothy replied, That woman was admiring the ring, so I gave it to her. Where is it said that only rich people can enjoy a diamond? What a waste, they thought. It was Christmas, and the grandparents spent lots of money to buy their granddaughter a loving, home, sweet family dollhouse. That's a popular toy, you know. And she unwrapped it and pushed the dollhouse aside and played with the box. Rather than rejoicing in their granddaughter's happiness, they complained that she ignored the toy. What a waste, they thought. A couple considers planning a nice romantic getaway. They've been so busy with work and kids, neglecting themselves, and they know they needed to get away and splurge a little bit. They never do anything for themselves. But then they decided, no, we have too many other things that we need to spend the money on. That would be a waste. A bright and talented student graduates from college, and everybody expects him to go to law school, but rather he takes a job serving a community mission and the family and the parents and others say, what a waste. A father has done very well for himself, growing the family business. There is much acreage, hundreds of employees, and when his two sons got old enough, they came to work for the family business, and one day the younger son had had enough of that, and he said, Dad, I'd like to have my share of the inheritance. Can you go ahead and give it to me now so that I can enjoy it? And that was an acceptable practice if the father consented to it, and and he did. And he liquidated enough assets to grant his younger son one-third of the inheritance, and the son went off and squandered it on wild living. What a waste. But the father loved his son so much that he went out every day into the road looking for his son. Maybe he would come back. And one day off in the distance, he saw a shadow approaching and thought, it must be him. And he started to run. And as he got closer, he saw that indeed it was his son. And he embraced his son and hugged him and kissed him over and over and over again. And the son started to tell him the apology that he had rehearsed there in the pigsty in the far-off country, and the father interrupted him mid-sentence and and said, son, just wait a minute, and told the servants to get the best robe and bring it, and they put it on him, and to get the signet ring, a sign of his sonship, and put it on his finger, and then got some new shoes and put them on his feet that gave him dignity, and then he said, slay the fatted calf because today we are going to celebrate my son who is dead is now alive, my son who was lost is now found, and there was a great celebration. And when the older son came back from the fields and heard the music and saw what was going on and wondered why the party And when he learned through a servant that it was his younger brother, he was indignant and refused to go. He thought, 
What a waste. John the Evangelist tells the story of a man named Lazarus who became very sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, lived there with Lazarus in Bethany. And they were distraught because their dear friend Jesus was late getting there and Lazarus had died. It was the fourth day. And all of the people in the Jewish community knew that after the third day there was no hope of a resurrection and that Lazarus was beyond hope, that he was gone. And Jesus was filled with compassion. The Bible tells us that he wept and that means that he wept bitterly and profusely at the tomb of Lazarus that had been closed with a large stone. And then Jesus said, take away the stone. And they did. And he prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. And then he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus emerged from the tomb. And he said, take off those grave clothes and let him go. And Lazarus was alive. He who was dead was alive. And he was free. Shortly after this miracle was performed in chapter 11 of, chapter, of, of John's gospel, the 12th chapter tells us that Mary and Martha decided to throw a party and Jesus was the guest of honor. Perhaps they wanted to celebrate their brother who was lost and found, who was dead and alive, and to honor Jesus for bringing him back to them. And they gave an extravagant dinner in Jesus' honor. We can imagine the setting. Jesus reclining on the cushions there on the floor around the table. The disciples are there along with some other guests. Martha busy at work in the kitchen, as was her practice, making sure that every course was just perfect. Imagine the empty plates kind of clanging and the dishes that were taken from the tables being rinsed off and the sound of water there in the kitchen as they were cleaning up things, getting ready for the next course. Jesus and the other guests were in steady conversation. Lazarus is there. They're probably talking about the upcoming Passover feast within the next week. Maybe some of them wanted to know what it was like for Lazarus. Did you see Moses? Did you see Elijah? What was it like? Did you see a light? And then there was a loud crack. And it was the top of that alabaster jar broken off. And then the aroma, this strong aroma of this valuable perfume, this nard, Chanel number no. five. And the room and the house smelled of this strong perfume. Mary takes a whole pound of this nard and lays down at the feet of Jesus, putting the nard over his feet, covering his feet, and then lets her hair down, which was a very intimate act back then, an act of humility, an act of servitude, an act of extravagant generosity, and perhaps the foreshadowing of Jesus who washed his disciples' feet at the Passover supper that they had been talking about. 
If you're imagining what it might have looked like, there's a painting by an artist named Frank Wesley, a 20th century artist from India, a believer, but from Hindu and Muslim backgrounds, so you can see the influence in his work. And the painting shows Mary anointing Jesus' feet with her left cheek touching his left foot, and she's cradling the other foot, and she's not indicating that Jesus would have washed the dust off of his own feet, but rather she is showing what ministry may be like. And she has a complete disregard for anything else that's going on in the house. Despite all of the other conversation and activity in the room, she has not been deterred and she will not be distracted. One church historian says this, it wasn't uncommon in those days to anoint the head of a guest as a sign of respect, but in those cases only a few drops of oil were used The pouring of lavish amounts of oil, again, on the head, was the kind of anointing that was considered sacred, and it was usually reserved for designating someone as a king or a priest. The anointing marked that person for divine service. But the word anoint in the English is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach and the Greek word Christos, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. So while we have no way of knowing exactly what Mary was thinking, her action expresses more, says the writer, than simple respect for Jesus. It seems to express her conviction that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And perhaps Mary poured the perfume on his feet because she didn't see herself as worthy enough to pour it over his head. Judas Iscariot, though, was at the table. And when he saw what Mary did and smelled the perfume, he became incensed. What a waste. Matthew and Mark's gospel use that terminology. And they say that other disciples complained as well. We don't know their names, though. But here in John, Judas gets the attention because of what he said to Mary. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? That would be a year's wages. Today and our time, some $30,000. John, the narrator here, reminds us that Judas could care less about the poor because he frequently embezzled money from the money bag of the disciples. He was the treasurer. And Jesus rebukes Judas. Leave her alone. He says nothing about Judas as a thief. He says, leave her alone. He rises to her defense, and he gave the reason for why she did what she did. For she, the act that she has done is for the day of my burial. Anointing the dead was a common burial practice in that time, and Jesus, knowing what was coming that next week, accepted this anointing not as one of kingship, but one for his coming burial. He would suffer and die for all. Mary's gift was one extravagant gift, and it was not wasted perfume. It's interesting to read this text alongside the parable of the loving father that was our gospel lesson last Sunday and the series that we were in for three weeks. Luke showcased the extravagant spending of the younger son 
and the extravagant love of the loving Father. Mary continues this theme of extravagance in the form of costly gestures involving expensive perfume. Mostly we think of Lent as a time of deprivation rather than extravagance. But as we near the end of the Lenten season and next Sunday prepare for Palm Sunday and the celebration of Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time, I believe that this text is very appropriate for us today. This text speaks of generosity. Neither the loving fathers nor Mary's generosity is inappropriate extravagance. The father said to his old son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to throw a party because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. Leave her alone, said Jesus. And in my paraphrasing, now is no time for frugality. This extravagance on earth is participating with the work of heaven. In her work, The Seeds of Heaven, Barbara Brown Taylor writes this. To be where God is, to follow Jesus, means going beyond the limits of our own, our own comfort and safety. It means receiving our lives as gifts instead of guarding them as our own possessions. It means sharing the life that we have been given instead of bottling up for our own consumption. It means giving up the notion that we can build dams to contain bright streams of our lives and letting them go instead. To swell their banks and to spill their wealth until they carry us down where they run full and growing fuller into the wide and glittering sea. And then Barbara Brown Taylor says this. The woman with the ointment reminds us that some of those things we are quick to call a waste are not. Instead, she writes, they are wonderful, extravagant gifts of grace poured on us by love itself. We are reminded today of that extravagant, lavish, wasteful love of God through Jesus Christ poured out on us. And these simple elements of bread and juice are God's way of reminding us daily. That next Passover, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room and he took bread and he blessed it and gave thanks and broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Take, eat, as often as you meet together. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the wine and he blessed it and poured it out, saying, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of your sins and the sins of many. This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you meet together, take, 
drink this do in remembrance of me.